0: This is Melissa Stewart, welcoming you to an episode of Beyond Brave podcast. Beyond Brave is a chance for us to learn from each other. It's also a time to be courageous by sharing ideas, especially those ideas that are initially less than perfect in the classroom. Lastly, it's a chance to be brave together by boldly embracing a culture of pedagogical inquiry. I recently saw a statistic that high school students today have more anxiety symptoms and are twice as likely to see a mental health professional as teens in the 1980s, so I wanted to dig in to find more information. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, nearly one out of three adolescents will meet the criteria for an anxiety disorder by the age of 18. In this episode of Beyond Brave, we will focus on brain health, some reasons why those statistics may be increasing, and how schools can support the whole child by addressing brain health issues, both proactively and in response to student need. I would like to welcome Rachel McCoy. Rachel is a mental health counselor who is working full-time at the middle school and high school as part of a partnership between schools and Children's Hospital Medical Center. Rachel started her career as a therapist after earning a master's degree in counseling. This year will be her 11th year as she has served as a therapist by working directly with students, in the school setting, and her fifth year in our school district. In her current position, not only does she provide direct services to students, but she is a member of the Brain Health Network of multiple agencies that research, plan, and implement strategies to address adolescent needs. She is also a clinical lead on the school-based services team at the hospital, supporting a team of 12 social workers and counselors delivering school-based mental health services in neighboring districts. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. I feel like the issues surrounding brain health have changed drastically since I was an adolescent and in school. Do you think that those statistics have changed due to better diagnostic measures, environmental issues, or awareness?
1: I think it's a combination of all of those. So there definitely is a cultural shift. We can look back over the past 20 years or so and note that we're living in just some different times and the experiences that I had as a high school student and that you might have had as a high school student are different than what our high school students are coping with today. And then with the kind of information overload that we're living in, the diagnosis is much easier to nail down. People can seek those services much more quickly. And so it's increasing the awareness, which does increase the statistics a little bit.
0: When you talk about environmental factors, it reminds me that I have two adolescent children. I have two boys. They're 14 and 15. And when I see the impact that social media has Mm -hmm. on them, I am at times thankful because they learned so much more than I had access to. And at times I want to cringe because Mm -hmm. they just can be overwhelmed by everything that's happening around them. Right. I hear very similar terms of mental health, mental wellness, and brain health. Is there a difference between these terms? Yes and no. So
1: mental health and wellness feel very interchangeable to me. That's technically how you're functioning on a mental and emotional level. Are you thinking clearly or are you easily distracted or living in a fog, that type of thing? Are you able to plan and organize tasks efficiently? Do you generally feel happy? Do you experience a range of emotions? Are do you have days where sometimes you maybe feel sad or down and other days where you feel fine? Or is there one kind of pervasive emotion, whether it's anger or frustration or sadness that is kind of dictating how your days go. In terms of brain health, we think a little bit about, is there an actual disorder going on? So if I'm diagnosing somebody who has an actual disorder, I'm looking to the extent at which those symptoms might interfere with their day-to-day living. So if they're so anxious that they can't go to a party and have a good time, or they maybe can't even leave the house, or they're so depressed that they have a hard time getting out of bed, or they can't think clearly, or their sleeping is impacted. That's when there might be an actual disorder going on, and it may even be related to brain chemistry, which could be benefited by medications. But that's what I think about when I think about brain health and how well is your brain functioning and do you have a diagnosable disorder.
0: So let's start with some foundational information. What is the difference in your role as a school-based therapist versus a therapist at Children's Hospital or even someone in the private setting?
1: So as a school-based therapist, my role is primarily to provide an ease of access to care for students and families that are wishing to seek mental health treatment. So my office is in a school building, which is different than a practitioner out in the community or even at Children's Hospital um, down at their base location in Clifton. That provides a couple of different opportunities. If a team wanted to invite a child's clinician to a team meeting to talk about how the child is functioning, whether they're having some issues with task management or ADHD problems, or maybe they are really depressed and they're failing every class and they just really need a game plan, and they want to invite a clinician to that meeting, I can be at that space pretty quickly and can put it in my schedule very easily. Could you invite an outside practitioner to those meetings? You could. But it would really require a lot in the practitioner to get to the meeting. There would be a lot of back and forth about scheduling the meeting. And so me being embedded in the school environment provides sort of a different layer of care to the child because I'm in their space listening to what's happening in school. How are they doing their homework? How are they functioning in a classroom? What's going on with them socially? And that has a much different impact than a clinician that's maybe in an office setting now. There are some downfalls to that because I don't have as much contact with parents because if a parent is bringing a kid to a session at another location, then the the therapist gets to see the parent. So it requires a lot of legwork on my part to stay in contact with the parent or the family. But because so many of the child's hours are spent in a school setting and so much of their life is spent in that space – it's really a neat opportunity to have a therapist in a school building because they can really collaborate well with many people in the student's life rather than just maybe checking in about, well, how's school going?
0: Oh, it's fine,
1: you know, which is might, might be what you get at a different office location.
0: So what does a typical school day look like for you?
1: So I'm here when the students are here, so I'm here a little bit before. I kind of run a teacher's schedule. I'm here a little bit before the students get here and then a little bit after. And I might have between five and seven appointments per day. I see the students typically during a part of their day that is okay for them to miss a little bit of. So it's many times gym or choir or art class. Our encore teachers are wonderful about being gracious about our students missing parts of those class. And then in between those sessions, I might be collaborating with teachers or school counselors, administrators about what's going on with one of my students. I might be making phone calls to parents to touch base about what's happening at home. I might be collaborating with another team member across town about something going on in their world. So my days feel very packed. I also have case notes that I have to complete um, just to sort of stay up to date, Uh, emails to respond to, all those administrative tasks as well. So my days feel very tight because I can only see the kids during the school day, Um, and then I have other stuff to accomplish on top of that. But the access to care piece is really great because parents don't have to come and take their child out of school for an appointment with me. They can just work it into their general school day, and it's really easy that way.
0: As a principal and as a teacher, I had access to a school-based therapist, and I loved it because – I could go to that counselor and give very specific examples mm-hmm. of how those problems were manifesting within the school setting. Yes. And it's just so hard to communicate that via email. Mm-hmm. Or if it was an outside practitioner, I didn't know that person. They didn't know me. And I was worried about saying the wrong thing and appearing the wrong way. And so mm-hmm. just to have access to somebody who I have an ongoing relationship with, I was able to better serve students. Yeah. What are some proactive strategies that districts can take to address brain health of students? I would say to really work
1: hard at managing the stigma around mental illness or struggles. That is a really difficult battle. Even in today's time, you know, we, we're careful about the language that we use mm-hmm. around these things because you, you know, people will say, oh, you're so mental or that seems crazy or whatever. But being able to talk about the issues that students face in that category often enough, where it becomes something that is not feared or ashamed of, and it creates an opportunity for more learning around that. There's some districts around Cincinnati that are working hard to educate their entire staff, and entire district, not just their teaching staff, but everyone from top administrators all the way down about how to talk to students that they think might be struggling with these types of issues. QPR is question, persuade, refer, is a training program that is really meant for just teaching lay people how to talk about the issue of suicide. People, um, they might be thinking of hurting themselves or um, just are really struggling in that space. Teaching regular people how to just talk about that and then refer them to a professional to get ongoing help. A lot of times these scarier topics can really freeze people and have them not know what to do or how to handle things. And so, Really seeking to educate everyone in the district about how to talk to students that might be struggling with whether it's a minor issue or really major issues is a really great thing. I read an article earlier today about schools in Denmark that are creating space in their daily schedules for empathy training for their students. And they're teaching their students how to just be better humans and be better friends. And so some of what that class looks like is they'll have students just talk to the classroom about a problem that they might be facing. And the teacher facilitates a discussion about how to help this this individual solve this particular problem. And so you're teaching them listening skills and empathy and feelings identification. And it's just part of their day. And they also really do a lot of teamwork and so there was a line in this article about how the students in Denmark are taught to only compete with themselves and not their neighbor, and the ability to work together for the greater good and to, and also stay in your lane and run your own race well. And I thought that was really beautiful.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm kind of giggling because uh, for our friends out there who have listened to some of the other episodes there was another guest, Tristan, who shared a thought based on a book that they have read Mm -hmm. that it wasn't possible to teach empathy. And I joked at that time and said, I know some really great counselors who are going to email you and contest that thought. So would you be one of those people when you would say you can teach empathy? You
1: can. And it is tricky at times, especially in today's culture. But you can. And and begin early and do it often. I think it can definitely be done.
0: I think I see another episode in our future. And it will be Rachel and Tristan having a conversation about empathy. And it will be awesome. Sure. So, sometimes teachers don't have the ability to make big district wide decisions mm-hmm. about training. So, what can an individual teacher do to address brain health within their classroom?
1: The most powerful thing that I've seen from a teacher's perspective is the ability to foster a genuine connection between them and a student. They often are seeing the students maybe more often than I am in some ways. And so Having the ability to connect with any student that comes to your classroom, no matter what they might be coping with, no matter what they have faced that day, and being able to just talk to them about what's going on. And creating a space of openness and approachability and, you know, that this is not just about learning these certain bullet points for this particular class, that you're interested in the, the, the wholeness of who they are. And then if you pay attention to students that might be struggling, that might look like the student who is maybe last picked for group work or the student who just never really seems to care about their work and they're just kind of phoning it in in terms of their assignments or the student that has a marked change in the way that they are in your class or maybe they were really bright and bubbly at the beginning of the semester and maybe at this point in the semester they seem really withdrawn and they're not as talkative and so just acknowledging that change and observing what your behavior and saying, it seems like you're working through some stuff. You know, is there something I can help you with or tell me what, what might be going on? But the individual connection between the teacher and the student is probably the most powerful thing that a teacher can do. And that involves some of these other skills of Uh, listening and empathy and positive regard and all of those sort of human things that may not have to do with the task of learning math or social studies.
0: There are so many things that you said I want to respond to. I started my career as a high school teacher, and I had the good fortune to work with an incredible team of administrators. And one of the questions that they posed to us during the evaluation process was, How are you representing that you're a teacher of students who is assigned to the subject area of blank Mm -hmm. versus you are a, I'm going to make this up, you are a math teacher or even you are more specifically the AP physics teacher. How are you representing that? And I was a new teacher when this question was posed to me. And I have always remembered it. Like mm-hmm. I'm I'm a little bit older and wiser now. And I still think about that question that they would ask me on an annual basis. It mm-hmm. reminds me of that. I'm also wondering when you think about some of the ways that teachers can respond, is that also connected to QPR or is that it for a different be. team of people? It
1: can be. QPR is, you know, when I did the training recently to become a certified trainer, They likened it to CPR in that really it's a skill that can be taught to anyone just as CPR can. And it's really figuring out ways to gain more comfort in talking about the issues surrounding suicide and what that might look like. And it's not that they have to be the person that intervenes and does all of the helping. It's really more starting the conversation and helping that person get to the next level of care. And part of the belief behind that is, For some of these teachers or coaches or maybe even a custodian, they might have the strongest relationship with that child. And that might be a really beautiful opportunity for the child to open up to them. And that's why having some comfort around those skills is really important because they may not want to talk to their school counselor or even their parents about what they're going with because they might not have as good a relationship with them. But if you're one of their main people and you're noticing that something is going on the ability to call that out and talk about it and to help them move along to where they need to be is really powerful.
0: It's all about relationships. Yes. It really is. Yes. You gave us some really good tips about observing and even scripting out what we can say to a student who is experiencing some milder brain health issues within the classroom. Uh But what about the student who is displaying some qualities or behaviors that are much more severe in nature? How do we respond to that?
1: The first thing I would say is to not do that alone. Talk with your team of teachers. Definitely talk with your school counselors or school psychologists that maybe have some different experience with that student or different knowledge about what that student might be coping with, as well as some additional training that the teacher may not have about how to handle that situation. That's definitely not something to be handled solo. And I think just employing other people on the team. So that might look like, talking with other teachers that the student has and saying, are you noticing the same things? This is what's going on in my classroom. Or talking to the school counselor and saying, do you have any information that might be helpful? Here's kind of what I'm observing and I'm really starting to get worried and and what can we do maybe to, to move this along. But definitely not something to handle lightly and really finding other people to talk to and employ and just really kind of wrapping around the child so that they can get the help that they need.
0: Not every school has an awesome Rachel McCoy. (laughs) If I want information about QPR, I can find you and I can even ask you if you'd be willing to come to a department meeting or grade level meeting Mm -hmm. or conference and present information. Right. But if a building doesn't have a Rachel McCoy, where do teachers go to receive that type of information?
1: So, two websites that are part of this collaborative that you have mentioned, sort of in my introduction, uh, onein5.org has a ton of resources for lay people, for parents, students, and also for teachers. One in Five has done a wonderful job of really working to reduce that stigma around mental illness. And they have provided trainings and education and just a lot of awareness around issues related to mental health. Especially in a school setting, especially for children, and then Mind Peace Cincinnati has resources for parents, for schools, for teachers. There's a whole section of their website that is dedicated to. Here are some things that you can employ in your classroom. So it's it tips for increasing social and emotional learning, tips for a trauma-informed classroom. There's a lot of research around that going on right now, and how it's important to be mindful of students who've had traumatic experiences in their lives and what that looks like in a school setting. So those two websites, onein5.org and then MindPeaceCincinnati.org, those have a lot of the the marriage between adolescent and childhood mental illness and education in the school setting and what that looks like to sort of bring the two together.
0: Recently, I was at a conference and I ran into a former colleague of mine. We are now both working for different districts all the way across the greater Cincinnati area. And we were sharing some aspects of our school year that had went really well. And I had talked about our ongoing relationship with Children's Hospital and the services that we can provide students, as well as how much we're learning as a staff based mm-hmm. on that partnership. That former colleague of mine had never heard of 1 in 5 in mm-hmm. Mind Piece, And mm-hmm. I was so excited to share that information with her. And said to her, in my experience, if you get in touch with them, they will absolutely get in touch with you and they Mm -hmm. will support you through every step of the way, making decisions that benefit students, both proactively, if you want to think about professional learning for people, as well as reactively, if you have a student who's really struggling. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that you mentioned them. Last serious question. Yes. What are the greatest obstacles for schools to adopt practices that support mental wellness?
1: The main thing to me seems to be an ongoing challenge of stigma and not knowing how to have some of these conversations about these topics with the families that they serve. It continues to be, even with the increase in statistics and increase in awareness, it continues to be a sticky subject at times. And even families that I'm working with come into my office with a fair amount of shame or guilt about the the need to seek services. And it's sad to me as a clinician because – It seems like treatment feels like this big, scary thing, and really, when you get down to it, it's just being able to talk to somebody about what's going on, and it's so, so much less scary than what it is in people's minds. I think the other thing is that I think there's this cultural piece of advancement and competition, and feeling like everything needs to be big and great and the best and wonderful at everything, and so I can see where. For some districts, the mental health awareness and some of those educational opportunities get pushed aside because there's other things that take precedent. And so being able to find that really great balance of how do we ensure that our students are equipped in all the ways that they need to be when they leave here, not just academically, but socially, emotionally, mentally, and all those other pieces.
0: I have sometimes had the conversation with families when they are struggling to say yes to counseling. That if your child had a vision problem, without Mm -hmm. a doubt, we would say, well, let's just go and let's have a checkup. And if necessary, let's make sure that you get those glasses. Right. And even though that child might even feel funny wearing glasses, Mm -hmm. it will be okay in the end. And it will be, they need the glasses. We need to do it. And I feel like counseling is the same. Mm -hmm. Like if, if it's something that's needed, just do it. And I always give a little bit of a cheer when... Someone who has some significant reputation and publicity Mm -hmm. says, well, I went to counseling Mm -hmm. or I regularly go back to counseling. Yes. And every time that that happens for somebody who's well-respected and famous, it lowers the stigma. Yes. And I cheer every time. Definitely. Definitely. Okay, great. Rapid fire questions. Ready? I'm ready. Family members.
1: My husband, David, and then I have three boys, Luke, who is almost eight, Jonah, who's five, and Andrew, who is almost
0: three. Shout out to those of us who are raising boys. That's right. right. That's right. Favorite room in your house.
1: Right now, it is our living room. We just moved into our house in December and we've been spending this past six months just putting it together. And so our living room is sort of the place where we all kind of convene and we got a huge sectional couch that we all fit on comfortably. And so that's really where I like to hang out. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Hometown. I'm originally from Florence, Kentucky, right across the river.
0: Favorite fruit? Strawberries. Most binge-worthy TV show, and you can include Prime and Netflix and Hulu and all those things. Yes.
1: I would say on Amazon Prime, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel.
0: I keep hearing that. I haven't yes, started it yet. Really I need good. to. Yeah. Recommendation of a book, a website, podcast, or article?
1: I have so many to choose from. The book that has stuck with me most recently is Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Believed by Kate Bowler. She is Is a professor at Duke Seminary and is a young mom and was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer a couple of years ago. And the book really walks through her journey of being diagnosed with this really scary diagnosis and what that means and talks a little bit about what do you do when well meaning people say these really crazy things to you, like everything happens for a reason. And you look at your life and you go, I can find no good reason for this Mm -hmm. to be happening to me. And so, what does that mean? And I really loved the – just the struggle of somebody walking through that experience but also learning, like, how do I best attend to people in my life that might be coping with something really awful and make sure that I'm mindful of how I'm interacting with them and not saying these pithy sayings that might be just causing some frustration for
0: them. Well, sounds great. What do you hope your students say about you?
1: I hope that they say – That I helped them find their way, maybe through a really difficult time, maybe through a really difficult family experience. But I never think that I'm the author of that. I just try to create space for that to happen. And I hope that they say that I help them find their, their way through whatever they're walking through.
0: What do you hope your colleagues say about you?
1: I hope they say that I'm helpful and fun to be around.
0: What does it mean to you to be a brave
1: After a number of years working in this district, I can say that being a brave means that you strive towards excellence all the time and that you're aware of what that means and that that's really personal and not somebody else's definition, but it's your own definition of excellence and that you show up ready to give your best every day.
0: We are recording this after school is out. It's much more quiet around here. So one last question. What are you looking forward to doing this summer? So
1: we just booked a little small family vacation to Michigan uh, right before school resumes at the beginning of August. And we have not been on vacation in a number of years because our children are so small and not easy to travel with. And so I'm really looking forward to kind of Closing out our summer and getting away and doing something new together.
0: That sounds great. Dave and I, my husband Dave and I used to joke and say there's a difference between a vacation and a trip. Yes. (laughs) When you have little children. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, as a summary, I just want to say that when I think about what it means to be a brave, I think it's working tirelessly for our students. And the relationship that we have developed with One in Five, and Mind Peace and Children's Hospital is one of the pieces that make it whole around here Mm -hmm. and that could not have happened without you thank you we were so lucky that you were the person who came to our door and said let's start these services here and i see students working through the program and exiting the program Mm -hmm. and feeling stronger and happier and confident and it's because it's you with the skills that you have and the connection that you make between this world of brain health in the school environment mm-hmm. and it couldn't happen without you. And so every day I'm so thankful for you and all that you do. Thank you. It's really so, good to hear. Thanks for being here. We appreciate sure. it. Absolutely.